when you start school, uh, you start in kindergarten or maybe preschool, and you start with uh, basic things, right? Basic things. We uh, call them foundational things. You work with number lines, and you work with letters and the alphabet, and you start putting uh, letters and learning the sounds that letters make, and you put them together to make words, and then figure out the order in which those letters go to make the words, and then how the words fit together to make sentences, so that eventually you get to the point where you can read, right? And then you can read, and you can uh, write, and you can think about concepts and convey concepts and thoughts through uh, writing, through written word. And the same thing is true for math, right? You start just with numbers, and you start with one and two and three and four, and you count up to ten, and you work on those foundations, and you start working with a number line that goes from zero to ten, and you work your way along that number line, and you start working on proficiency then. The older you get, the more you work on the proficiency so that you have um, fluidity in your understanding of how the number line works and how numbers interact with one another so that so pretty soon you are able to uh, do basic math addition and subtraction in your head. You don't have to think about it and work it out every single time. You just know that concept really well, and then it starts to build on that and build on that and build on that. But you have to have those foundational concepts first, right? You can't just take somebody who has no experience with number lines and numbers and the relationship between numbers or how words work and then throw them into a college chemistry class and expect that that's going to go very well. You're not going to be able to take somebody and put them in a philosophy class and talk about uh, higher level uh, wisdom and understanding of how the world works before you build those foundational things. Well, the reason that I say that is because this morning we're going to talk about a foundational thing. We're going to talk about the very foundation of our faith and what it means to be a Christian. That's what we're talking about this morning. And we have to recognize how important it is. Because if you get the foundation wrong, you mess up everything. Right? If you didn't get the letters right, if you didn't get the words right, if you didn't get the numbers right, then when you get further on, it's all going to be wrong. I, I'm trying to help some of my, um, my own kids with their math homework, and it's getting harder and harder to help them with their math homework. Unless I can go and go, wait, you made a basic mistake that you, you added that wrong. And then they are so frustrated, right? Because they're learning higher level math and they made an addition mistake or a subtraction mistake. But we have to be fluent in those things, have those really solid before we can move on to other things. And so let's make sure that this morning we have the foundations of our faith very firm. And the foundation of our faith is this. Who is Jesus. Who is Jesus? You may recall that Jesus has been traveling around as we work our way through the, the book of Matthew. It seems like Jesus is always on the move. He's, he's moving from this place to that place, from this scene to that scene to have different interactions with different people. Sometimes he's interacting with uh, Gentiles, non-Jewish people, and he's having interactions with them. And then, boom, he moves to a different place and he's having interactions with religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. 
and he's debating with them. And then he moves somewhere else, and he's talking with his disciples all alone. He brings them off to the side, and he says, okay, guys, let's talk about what's going on over there. And then he's back with the crowds, the Jewish crowds, and he's talking with them and teaching them all kinds of parables and things. And then, boom, he moves over somewhere else again, and he talks with his disciples again. Okay, guys, did you understand what was going on over there? Let me explain it to you. And in each of those scenarios, wherever he is, there are people going, who is this guy again? Who is this? Who is this guy with this such great teaching? Who is this guy that is able to do such amazing miracles? Who is this guy? They've asked that question over and over again. In fact, Matthew highlights it so that he can highlight what people think of Jesus and then can correct their understanding of who Jesus is. And again, that's going to happen. But today we get to the very heart of it. If you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 16, we're going to start in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus is asking the question, okay, the, the, in the book of Daniel, it refers to a son of man, and the, in Ezekiel, it refers to a son of man, and, and uh, who do people think that that is? I've been using that term for myself, son of man, and who do they say that the son of man is? Well... Some of them said John the Baptist, and so his disciples said, well, some of them said John the Baptist. You might remember back just a couple chapters ago in Matthew chapter 14 when Herod heard. It was said in Matthew 14 verse 1, at that time Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. John, uh, Herod thought, that's John the Baptist, that prophet that was out there speaking about we should repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, and now I'm hearing about a prophet speaking and saying repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and, and I think that that must be John the Baptist. And the reason now that this prophet that's saying those same things as what John the Baptist said is doing these miraculous works is because it's John the Baptist back from the dead. That's what Herod thought. And so his disciples tell him, well, some of them think that you're John the Baptist. Others of them think that you're Elijah, the great prophet Elijah, because in the book of Malachi, in chapter 4, verse 5, it said, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is at the very end of the Old Testament. One of the last prophets to speak to the people of Israel was saying, the prophet Elijah is going to come to prepare the way for the Lord. And so the disciples say, that 
promise, that anticipation that Elijah is going to come again. Some people are seeing you and hearing the things that you're saying. They're seeing the miraculous work that you're doing, and they think that you are Elijah coming to prepare the way for the Lord. And then there are others who think maybe you're Jeremiah or just one of the other prophets or maybe just some other prophet. Maybe you're just a a prophet like the prophets of old. We haven't had any great prophets in a long time and maybe you're just a new prophet like the ones that they read about in the scriptures who's able to do miraculous signs and wonders, who's able to heal people and who is proclaiming the repentance of sinners to turn back to the kingdom of God. Jesus, there's all kinds of ideas about who you are. And so he said to them in verse 15, but who do you say that I am? But who do you say that I am? You, my disciples, my inner circle, you guys who have been with me from the beginning of my ministry, who have walked with me, who've not only seen the miracles and heard the teaching, but have had those private conferences with me afterwards where we explained what was going on and you were able to ask direct questions and I was able to answer them directly. With all that you have seen, with all that you have heard of me, with your living with me day after day and traveling with me from place to place so that in every story, while he's interacting with disciples here and followers there and Gentiles there and Jewish leaders there, there are his disciples following him, watching every scenario, every scene, every interaction and understanding what's going on. And so Jesus says, who is it that you think I am? Who is it that you think I am? I think that this is still a foundational question. This is still a question that every person in the world, whether they know it or not, whether they want to or not, everyone in the world has to wrestle with this question. Who is Jesus. Who is the historical Jesus that walked in the area of Palestine thousands of years ago? Was he a great teacher? Was he a great prophet? Was he a miracle worker? Was he a moral example of the type of life that we should lead? Who was he? And this, as Christians, is the question that we are asked. Even as Jesus asks his disciples this question, we hear it and say, okay, how would I answer this question? Before I get to their answer, how would you answer that question? Who is Jesus? Who do you say that he is? Who is he to you from your perspective? Well, Simon Peter, always the bold one, is the one to reply most quickly. 
Verse 16, Simon Peter replies and he says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We know you, Jesus. We know who you are. You are the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. Messiah is the Hebrew term for anointed one. Christ is the Greek term for anointed one. But an anointed one is one who had oil or something put on them that they were anointed for a particular office. There would be some kind of a ceremony, maybe a big ceremony or maybe a small uh, ceremony, but they would be anointed for a particular office and particularly for the office of king. And what Peter is saying is we know that there was a promise to David that one of his descendants would come and he would rule and reign on the throne of David over God's people. This is the anointed one that we are waiting for. This is our Messiah, our Christ that we have been anticipating. And Jesus, we know it's you. We know it's you. You are the Christ. You're the King. You are the Son of the living God. No, more, no mere mortal man in the flesh, but the Son of God. Coming to reign over His people. Peter's excited. Like the kid in the classroom. Who do you say that I am? Ooh, pick me, pick me. I know, I know. He's so excited. He's so excited to say what he knows to be true. Jesus, you are the Christ. You're the coming king. He's excited because he knows the answer. That's really exciting. But even more than that, about what's going to happen next. Wait till everybody knows that the king is here. Wait till everybody sees what Peter knows to be true, that this is the king. Wait until he comes in his glory and everyone sees and knows it. And Peter is there as one of the students head of class, right there with Jesus. And Peter is excited to proclaim, you are the Son of the living God. You are the Christ, the anointed one, who has come to save the people from this oppression that they are under, to free them so that they might be God's people. Jesus, we have been waiting for you. Our fathers were waiting for you. Our grandfathers were waiting for you. We have been waiting and waiting, and now you are here, and I just want you to know I know who you are. I know who you are. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Simon, Simon Peter, 
You are blessed to know this truth. You are blessed to know this truth. This didn't come to you. You are the son of Jonah, the son of John. You're, you're, the, you're his son in the flesh, but this didn't get handed down to you from your parents. They didn't explain to you this. This was revealed to you from my Father who's in heaven. This was handed down to you from my Father who's in heaven. This spiritual wisdom about who I am, that is from heaven that you know that. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I tell you that you are Peter. Now, we lose something in translation here. We lose a play on words because he says, you are Petros, and on this Petra, I will build my church. You are a stone, and on this steady rock, I will build my church. What is this that he's referring to? It is this proclamation that Peter has just made. This proclamation that uh, he is the Christ, the Son of God. He says, okay, I want you to know, Peter, that you are right and that is what my church is going to be built on. Now, I think that when we hear that, we uh, make a mistake because I think that what most of us hear when we hear that is, and on this rock I will build my churches. Because when we think church, we think gathering like this. We think of about a, about a group of people who is sort of organized in some kind of membership way with a pastor, probably a building most of the time, and this is a church, and this church and other churches are all built on the foundation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But when he's saying that, he's not talking about a church like this. In fact, that word would be a, a called-out assembly of people. So the, the, the way that this term would be used for, as an ecclesia, called-out ones, called-out people, would be that um, a herald would come and they would call everybody out and the people would assemble. And so what Jesus is talking about here, the picture that Jesus is giving us is that, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, the king who is coming, who is calling out his people, all of his people who will assemble together the church and they will be his. And so what Peter is hearing is Jesus is affirming his declaration that he is the coming king and that the people are going to be called together to follow him. He is going to reign and Peter is going, yes, I knew it! I knew it! Wait until that happens. 
Wait until He summons His people and all the people come to acknowledge that He is the King. This is going to be awesome. This is going to be awesome. And I tell you, Peter, that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, as we hear that, we also hear echoes of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 28 specifically. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, and whoever believes will not be in haste. Whoever believes in that firm foundation will not be put to shame. They will not have to flee because their foundation is strong. This foundation in Zion And Jesus says, you want to know what that foundation stone is? It is the declaration that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is the foundation. Everyone who believes in that will never be put to haste. They will never have to flee. They will never be put to shame. That is the foundation upon which I will build my gathering of people, my called out ones who are assembled in my name. They will be built on that stone. In fact, that is what is recognized as Peter himself is preaching In Acts chapter 4, later after he understands the whole context even better than he does here, in Acts chapter 4 he says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is no salvation in, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Again, later on yet, Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 writes this, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. You see, the identity of Jesus is the foundation for His gathering of people. We are like living stones built on the foundation of Jesus the rock. And just like a building that without a strong, strong, um, solid foundation is compromised, Anyone who does not have Jesus as their foundation is compromised. 
their week. Anything that you build on that is tenuous at best and is going to fail. That's what's going to happen. Anytime we build something that doesn't have a solid base, then it's going to topple. It's just a matter of time. As soon as something comes along that that pushes against it or causes it to wiggle or sway, it's going to crumble and fall. And we have to understand as people who are followers of Jesus, Christians, that anything that we build that is not built on the foundation of Jesus is weak and is going to fail. We have to start there. We have to start with the understanding that Jesus is the Christ, the coming King, and He is the Son of God. We have to start there. Too often, we have ideas that we say, okay, this seems like wisdom to us, and so we say, this is, I know that this is wisdom, and then we're going to build on that and add some other things and and glom this on the side and then tack that in also, and we start to build these beliefs, and then we come across Jesus and go, oh yeah, that's a good one too. I feel better when I have Jesus in my life. Let's put that on the side over here. That's not a good place for Jesus. Jesus doesn't get stuck on on the side of a building. He doesn't get stuck on on the top, balanced precariously on top. Jesus is the foundation stone. If we try and add Jesus on, then everything else is going to fall apart. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. We have to start with Jesus as the foundation stone. If we tried to to talk about philosophy and stuff before we understood letters and sentences, we, we could talk about all kinds of things and we are not going to understand what's going on, right? We, we can't even formulate the ideas. And the same thing is true when we try to build our worldview, when we try to build our understanding of how life works and what we should and shouldn't be doing. When we build that on anything other than Jesus being the Christ, the Son of God, it is going to fall apart. We have to start there. And then we have to build on that and from there. And you can build like you're like you're building in, in math and you add the numbers together and then that you can subtract the numbers and work back and forth on the number line and it works pretty good. And then you start multiplying and then you start dividing and then you start doing algebra and you start mixing letters in and it starts working okay because you understand how these things work. And as long as you understand each step along the way and master each concept along the way, it gets more and more complex and the stuff you start to being able to do is pretty amazing. Because pretty soon you're sticking somebody in a capsule and sending them to the moon and then bringing them back again. And you go, how did they do that? Well, we just did the math and it worked. And sometimes I watch somebody who is a mature Christian who's been walking with Jesus for a long time and I go, how did they do that? How did they walk through that experience? How did they live through that? How did they flourish when it seemed like things were so difficult? How did they do that? And they said, well, I just followed Jesus. Come on. I know that's the church answer. What's the real answer? 
That's the real answer. If you've got Jesus as your solid foundation and you are following him, then all the other things build on that and you can do amazing things. Not because you're doing amazing things, but because you are following Jesus, the solid rock, the firm foundation. In fact, it sa he says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This idea that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, even the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, we, we, as we are reading this, may tend to overread. Anytime we read the word hell, we tend to overread that. And we think of, oh, wow, this is like the gates of hell with the, the uh, place of deep, dark punishment and fire and flames and all that kind of stuff. And, and okay, time out. Not every time we're reading about hell is it talking about that. That's not to say there isn't a place of eternal dark punishment for those who don't follow Jesus. There absolutely is. But it is not talking about that every time it talks about Hades or hell in, in the Scriptures. And I think that what it's talking about here is merely the gates of death. It's merely the gates of death. The gates of death will not prevail against those who have as their foundation Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Therefore, that place of eternal punishment also won't prevail, right? But here the emphasis is on death itself will not prevail. Death itself will not prevail. Because there will be eternal life for those who believe in Jesus. So that for those who believe in Jesus, death is not the end. Death is merely the beginning of an eternal glory with Him. I tell you, Peter, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. As we get to this, this, this understanding of who Jesus is, that he is the king, that he is the king that is the king of earth, but also with heavenly realities, right? When we're going to get to next week, I'm trying not to get too much into next week this week because then I won't have anything to say next week. But we're going to see next week that even as Peter proclaims so boldly that he knows who Jesus is, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that he doesn't really understand what that means yet. Because in his mind, what that means is that Jesus is going to come and is going to be the king and everybody's going to follow him and he's going to conquer and there's going to be peace and he is going to rule and reign. And even here, Jesus is giving us a preview that he's not talking about that because his kingdom is not merely an earthly kingdom. It is an earthly kingdom with heavenly realities. He is, in fact, the heavenly king 
And for those who follow him, it uh, has earthly consequences, right? Because being the king of heaven means he's also the king of earth. And when he calls out his subjects and they come to him, they submit to him and obey him and follow him. And he will protect them and care for them because he is their king. And so when he says, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven so that whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven, he has handed us this key and this key is that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. That's the key. Those are the keys to the kingdom. That's a phrase that we use sometimes, right? He gave me the keys to the kingdom. Jesus gave you the keys to the kingdom. He gave you the keys to the kingdom so that whoever you give those keys to, you say, hey, you want to get into the kingdom? I'll let you in through the front door. You don't have to sneak around the side. You don't have to come in the back. I don't have to to try and cover up for you. I'm going to give you the key so that you also can enter the kingdom of heaven because the key is this, that Jesus is the Christ. He is the anointed king of heaven and earth. He is the son of the living God. He is God in flesh. God himself took on flesh to be the king of heaven and of earth. And when you believe in him, you will never be put to shame. And death will have no hold on you. Because you will have eternal life with him from now until forevermore in his kingdom and in his glory. And it is marvelous. And that is the key. And so when we pray, Lord, May your will be done on earth in the same way that it is in heaven. We are holding this key. Because the foundation to the will of God being done on earth in the way that it is done on heaven, in heaven is that we have the understanding that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is the foundation to God's will being done on earth in the same way as done in heaven. In heaven, there is no confusion on that point. Everyone knows that Jesus is the King. Everyone knows that He is the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One. There's no confusion, and so everything revolves around that understanding. And when we bring that key then to earth, and we hand it out and we say, do you know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? We unlock the door. Because everybody who knows that, everyone who believes it, they unlock the door. And they open it up. And they walk right in. And their life will never be the same. Because their foundation has changed. What do you do with a structure that is weak and going to collapse because it has no foundation? You push it over and you start with the foundation. And so everything that we have that isn't built on the foundation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, we need to just push it over and start with this foundation and build from there. And then we can stand on solid, solid ground. So that the will of God may be done on earth in the same way that it is in heaven. It's not that 
God handed, or that Jesus is handing Peter some kind of special power and going, okay, I'm giving you this key. Anything that you lock up is now locked up, and God has to have it locked up in heaven too. And anything that you unlock is now unlocked, and God has to have that unlocked in heaven too, because Peter, you're that special, man. I'm giving you the power of the key. God is not beholden to Peter. God is not beholden to us either, but he has given us the key. And for everything that gets unlocked with that key, it's unlocked on earth and in heaven. And for everything that is locked because of that key, it's locked on earth as it is in heaven. Because those who build their foundation on Jesus will stand firm on earth and in heaven. And those who trip and stumble over Jesus on earth are going to stumble over him on earth and in heaven. And for them, the gates of hell will prevail because they did not have him as a foundation. And then, verse 20, he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And I go, what? Jesus, you gave him the key and told him not to use it. What are you doing? What are you doing? Why would you tell him not to use it? I want to use that key all the time. I want everybody to be unlocked in heaven. I want everybody to know. I want everybody to know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And if I tell them and they don't believe, well, at least they heard it. At least I waved the key in front of their face and said, would you take this? And they said, no. But now you're asking Peter not to use it? Why would you do that? And you're going to have to come back next week to find out why. (laughs) I'll give you a preview. Peter doesn't understand the key all the way. And he's going to have to understand the key. But by the time we get to Acts, and by the time we get to 1 Peter, he understands. And I'm hoping that you understand too. That your foundation and everything that you believe and do is built on that foundation that Jesus is the Christ the King of heaven and earth, the Son of the living God. And that you understand that you now hold the key to the kingdom of heaven. And I hope that you are liberal in using that to unlock those who are bound. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for opening our eyes to see that Jesus is the King of heaven and earth. That He is more than a teacher. That He is more than a moral example. That He is more than a miracle worker. That He is more than even a prophet. Lord, that it is God Himself in flesh to call his people to himself. 
And now, Lord, as a small gathering of your people, a small assembly of called out ones, we acknowledge that Jesus is the King. We acknowledge that with our words here this morning. And Lord, would you help us to acknowledge it in our life, in every action that we take, in every word that we speak, in every relationship that we form, May they all acknowledge and be built on the truth that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And it is in His name that we ask that Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven.